Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Lord, we pray that you would be the one guiding us and teaching us today, that your Holy Spirit, Spirit would speak to us, and that we would be encouraged by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's read Daniel 9. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we will talk about it. So Daniel 9, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses. The servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from the city Jerusalem, your holy hill, 
because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision and the, uh, at the first, came to me in a swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy people, sorry, a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and, mo and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong, uh, a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. This is the word of God. All right, so let's focus on the prayer first, right? Let's, let's uh, forget about the, the 70 weeks and the desolator and the desolations and all that stuff for a moment. Let's focus on the prayer first. So this is Daniel and this is the first year of King Darius. So this means that Babylon has just been defeated right? Babylon, the nation that, that, that took the people of Israel into captivity, the nation that took Daniel and his friends from Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon, this nation has been defeated. And now the Medes and the Persians are in power. And so Daniel is reading the word of God, right? He is reading his Bible, right? Of course, his Bible was not like the Bible that we have today. He had scrolls. And one of the scrolls that he had was the prophet Jeremiah. And so Daniel is reading the prophet Jeremiah 
and he realizes that Jeremiah, or he perceives that Jeremiah had prophesied that 70 years would pass and then Babylon would be, would be defeated and then the city of Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, they would be rebuilt. And so, you know, imagine Daniel, like he is living Bible history, right? right? He is right there and he's saying, wow, this already happened. Babylon was already destroyed and the time is almost up for, for us to return to Jerusalem. But then the amazing thing is that Daniel, instead of just, you know, growing complacent and saying, oh, you know, God is going to do what God does, right? Because God is sovereign and he's just going to do whatever he wants to do. No, he gets on his knees and he begins to pray and he begins to ask God to do the thing that God had promised that he would do, right? This is, this is incredible. So we have this incredible, beautiful prayer here. And really, you know, we don't have time to go over every single detail of this prayer. So I want to draw a few principles from here. But ultimately, the point that I, that I want all of us to see is that uh, when we pray, we need to pray with the big picture in mind. And this is something that Daniel uh, realizes as he, as he is given a response to his prayer. So we need to pray with the big picture in mind. And so what is the big picture? Well, let me give you a few things about what is the big picture. The first thing here is that God, God's will is compatible with prayer, with our prayer. God's will, God's sovereignty is compatible with prayer, right? What do I mean by that? Well, I think that, you know, if, if we think in human logic, if we think about God's sovereignty, right? If we recognize that he is king over everything and that he controls everything and he, as we saw last week, he is, the right, he is the one who writes history, I think that we might be tempted to say, well, then what's the point? Why do we pray? You know, if God has already decreed what's gonna happen in history, if God is in control, if God does whatever he pleases, then why do we pray? And I don't have a very clever answer for that other than, other than say, well, Daniel prayed and we are commanded to pray and God in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, in his mercy, in his grace, he decides to work through the prayers of his people. He decides to, to do and to work his sovereign will, but he works through the prayers of his people. And so praying for us is not this futile thing or this, you know, just, just kind of a ritual thing but we are actually coming to the presence of God, coming to the throne of mercy, and we are asking him to do something. We are asking him to fulfill his purposes. And in this way, we get, sorry, we get to participate in his plan, right? When you pray, you get to participate in God's plan. Um, so Notice one thing about Daniel's, Daniel's finding of God's will. Where did Daniel find God's will and God's purposes? He found them in scripture, right? He was reading his Bible. He was reading the scroll of Jeremiah and he perceived God's plan and wisdom in scripture. And so I would just say really quick, if you feel like your prayer life needs to be spurred on, I encourage you to come to scripture. Right? When you are in scripture, when you are reading the Bible, when you're reading the word of God, you are going to be spurred on your life of prayer. When you are saturated in the word of God, you are even going to be given words to pray. 
right? Sometimes we don't know what to pray. And, and it's, it's awesome that the Holy Spirit, you know, intercedes and prays. But it's also really great when we can come to the Bible, to the Word of God and say, oh, wow, God promised something. And this gives me, this gives me ammunition to pray to God because I just found something that He promised here in Scripture. And now I can pray that to Him. And that's what Daniel does, right? He sees that... Uh, he sees that, that, what just happened here? Okay, sorry. He sees that God promised something, that he promised that they would return to Jerusalem and he prays about that. I, I, I like this quote from um, Sinclair Ferguson. Is, uh, he's a guy that I've been reading. He's a, a you know, faithful brother, a preacher of the word. And, and he has a, a commentary on the book of Daniel. And this is one of the things he wrote about Daniel's attitude uh, in his prayer. He says, God's sovereign, God's sovereign purposes are never revealed in scripture as excuses for our personal indolence, but as incentives for action. The fact that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to Jesus did not mean that his disciples could sit back and relax. To the contrary, it obligated them to go throughout the world, the world with the gospel. So here, Daniel saw that since God had given this promise about the duration of the captivity, it was his responsibility to ask the Lord to fulfill his purpose. He recognized that God employs means to achieve his ends. The preaching of the gospel is the means by which Christ's sovereignty over the nations will be fulfilled. Prayer for the restoration of Jerusalem with all the labor that would demand was the means by which the Lord's word through Jeremiah would be fulfilled. So praying with the big picture in mind is remembering that God's will is compatible with our prayers. Is remembering that God works through us. God works through our prayers. Right? This is why in Matthew, Jesus, asks, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And he, he tells them to pray for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done. It's not that, it's not that if, you know, if you don't pray, God's kingdom is not going to come or God's will is not going to be done. He's going to do whatever he pleases. But when we pray, we get to participate in his sovereign plan. When we pray for his kingdom to come, we are participating in his plan. And when his kingdom does come, when his will is being done, then we get to be amazed and we see God at work through our prayers. Now, the second thing about praying with the big picture in mind is when we pray, we need to recognize that God is God and we are not, right? We need to recognize that we need to approach God with awe and with wonder, with respect, with, um, with reverence, right? Daniel, Daniel, uh, you know, he is praying because he, this is a prayer of confession, right? The people of Israel are in exile. They are in Babylon because of their sin, right? They're not on a, on a tour. They're not on a, you know, on a, they're not on vacation. They are in Babylon because they have sinned against God. And so this is a prayer of repentance. And one of the things that Daniel does in this prayer of repentance is that he acknowledges that God is not our equal. 
that God is to be feared, is to be revered, is to be addressed with respect, right? I, I love uh, in, in verse seven, I, I love that section where he compares, you know, to you, God, this is what belongs to you. To us, this is what belongs to us. To you, Lord, this is what belongs to you. To us, this is what belongs to us. And I think that's a really good exercise for all of us to think about what God deserves, who God is, to think about his character, and then to think about who we are, right? I think we do, it is really good for us to come to God recognizing that to him belongs righteousness, but to us, shame, right? To the Lord belongs mercy and forgiveness, but to us, it's shame because we've disobeyed God, because we've sinned against God, because we are not God, we are not perfect, but God is perfect, God is righteous, God is merciful. God is forgiving. I mean, even his attitude in verse three, right? His, his, his position in verse three, then I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. This was Daniel's way of showing his repentance and his, his complete need for God. So he acknowledges that God is not our equal. He also acknowledges that they broke God's law. And that's the same thing that we need to acknowledge, that we have broken God's law, right? The word law is mentioned multiple times in this passage, just to give you a little taste in verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor, etc. right? So he is recognizing that they have broken God's law. And I think it's extremely important for us that when we come to God, that we recognize that we have broken his law, right? A prerequisite to come to God and to be heard is to recognize our own sinfulness. Do you remember the, par it's, I don't think it's a parable. Do you remember the story that God told about the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The Pharisee comes to the, to the temple and, and, you know, he feels like he's the greatest person on earth and he compares himself to the tax collector and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Collector, I thank you that I do all of these things. I come to church every Sunday. I tithe, I do all, well, of course he doesn't say that, but you know, he, he is saying just how awesome he is. And then what does the tax collector say? Jesus tells the story, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Kaleo family, we cannot come to God in prayer and asking, well, we, we would never even ask for forgiveness if we don't recognize our own sin, right? If we don't recognize our own guilt. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So we, if we want mercy from God, 
If we want God's response, we need to come to him in humility, in repentance, with our sin wide open and saying, God, here is my sin. I've sinned against you. I've broken your law. And then I would add to that, if we want to know how we have broken God's law, I think we need to get acquainted with God's law. And, and let me do a quick commercial here. At the end of this series, we are going to begin a series on the Ten Commandments. And we believe the Ten Commandments are extremely important because it is God's law. And we want to know what God likes, what God wants from us, the standard for righteous living. Um, but again, we need to recognize when we come to God, we need to recognize that we have broken his law. And then the other thing that we recognize is that it, we recognize his attributes. Now, Daniel mentions a lot of God's attributes. Attributes are basically God's, God's character, God's qualities that describe him. And he mentions a bunch of them, right? He mentions that he is forgiving and, and uh, you know, he mentions a bunch. But the two that I want to focus on are God's righteousness and God's mercy. And he says that multiple times all over the prayer, he talks about God's righteousness. And the fact that God is righteous means that God is, well, number one, God is the standard for righteousness. And this means then that God is true to his character, right? He, he doesn't change. He is perfectly righteous. Everything that God does is good. God never makes a mistake. God never sins. You know, none of that stuff. God is the standard for righteousness. And we need to recognize that when we come to him. But I, I would say it is extremely good news that God is a righteous God because he is not like, you know, the, the, the gods that the pagan religions made up, you know, around Israel or the Greeks or the Romans who are, you know, capricious and they do whatever they want and they are motivated by lust. And they're basically like humans, right? They're made up. They're basically like humans, but not so with our God, right? He's perfect. He's not motivated by the things that we as humans are motivated. And, you know, we might say, well, of course, we don't believe in those, you know, pagan gods that the Romans made up. But I think that if we're honest, sometimes we have a made up God in our minds, right? We think that God is like us. And so we make him out to be how we think that he is. And, and I think that, that that is bad because sometimes, you know, if we, if we tend towards, uh, towards legalism, towards self-righteousness, then we think that God is that way, right? Or, or if we think towards, uh, um, what is the opposite of legalism? I don't have it written here. Licentiousness, thank you. If we, if we are, you know, if we think that God is just, you know, he, he is very lenient on sin and he's not, you know, sin is not that big of a deal, then that's the God that we think that we're praying to. But I think it's good for us to be reminded that God is righteous. God is perfect. God has a very high standard. So, I, you know, I mentioned that's good news. But if we're honest, that that also is bad news, right? Because if God is perfectly righteous and his standard is perfection, then what hope do we have, right? When he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never see the kingdom of God, right? So that makes us wonder with the disciples, who then will enter the kingdom of God? Well, this is why the other attribute of God is so incredibly good, which is his mercy. 
God is righteous, but God is also merciful. I love how Daniel says in, in verse 18 in the second half, he says, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy, right? Daniel understands that if he were to come to God and say, look, God, look at my righteousness, look at the good things that I have done, then he would be immediately rejected. And so he makes an appeal to God's mercy. And that's, that's our hope, right? None of us can come to God and say, God, look at everything that I've done. Look at the things that I do. Look at how much I read my Bible, how much I pray, and how much I go to church and all of these things that I do. It's rather, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. But I also know that you are a merciful God. You are a forgiving God, right? In verse nine, he says, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. And so how do we reconcile God's righteousness with God's mercy, right? Well, in his righteousness, he is right to judge us, right? In his righteousness, he is right to punish us. He is right to destroy us because we have sinned against him. But in his mercy, he always provides a way for our relationship with him to be restored, right? In the Old Testament, he provided a sacrificial system so that the people, whenever they sinned against God, they could atone for their sin. They could cover their sin and they could have a, a restored relationship with him. But then the greatest moment in history was when God sent his own son, his son, Jesus, and Jesus took God's wrath and punishment upon himself, the wrath and the punishment that we deserve. Jesus took it upon himself so that we could have a restored relationship with God, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And that is God's mercy, right? God's mercy is not that he just looks over sin and he forgets about it and doesn't do anything about it. That is not mercy. God's mercy is that he takes the punishment that we deserved and he places it upon his own son who willingly takes that punishment, who willingly makes that sacrifice. And then our sins are taken care of. Our sins are paid for. Our sins are covered. And now we have access to God because of his mercy. And so when we come to him in prayer, we need to remember the big picture is that God is righteous and merciful. And this is, this should lead us to prayer, right? In, in, in Hebrews, when he's talking about the access that we have through Jesus, he refers to God's throne as the throne of grace, the throne of mercy, right? It's not the throne of wrath. It's not the throne of judgment. For those who are in Christ, it's the throne of mercy. When we come to God, the Father, we can come and knowing that Jesus already accomplished our salvation and give us entrance into the throne of mercy. John, 1 John 1, 8. He, John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have sinned against God, do not hold that sin. Do not hold on to that sin. Do not let that sin destroy you. Do not let that, that sin keep you away from God. Rather, acknowledge your own sin, bring it to God, and he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, 
really quick before we move on to the 70 weeks. Another part of the big picture is that God loves his people. God is for his people, right? And there's a couple of things that I see here. Number one, we see that Daniel, when Gabriel comes to him, Gabriel tells him, Daniel, you are loved. And of course, you know, we know that Daniel had a, was a, a you know, great man, man of faith and he loved the Lord and, and he had a, you know, a special relationship. But we know that because of the work of Christ, God loves us, right? Those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, God loves us. And so when we pray to him, we can all, yes, we have to approach him with, with reverence, with, with awe, with, you know, with respect, but we can also approach him as our father, right? Again, Jesus, when Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray, he says, when you pray, pray in this way, our father. What other religion in the world would address their God as their father, right? Our father, right? This is my, my father, so we know that we are loved. And then we see throughout the prayer that God's name is so attached to his people that Daniel, that, that part of Daniel's plea is to ask God to do something for his namesake, right? In verse 15, for example, and now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. So he is saying, God, you have made a name for yourself, but the way you made this name for yourself was by delivering us from Egypt. Our, our, our name, our people is attached to your name. He says in verse uh, 17, now therefore our God, listen to our prayer, for, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his plea for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Jesus, you belong to God. He has decided to associate his name with his church, with his people. And so when, when you pray, it is okay to come to, to come to God and say, God, for your name's sake. God, do it, do it for us. Do it for your people. Father, do it for us, please. Right? We, we, even though we yet address him with, with respect, with awe, with reverence, we also know that he is for us and that he loves us and that he wants to answer our prayers. All right, so 70 weeks. I think we should just call it quit. No, let's, uh, there's a bunch of different views. I would say there's probably three major views. And as I was thinking about how to approach this, I, I, I don't want this to be confusing. Um, and so the approach that I decided to, to take is, I'm going to tell you the view that makes the most sense to me. And if you want to study more on this topic, I'm happy to recommend resources or I'm happy to, to have a conversation on this. But I think for now, I'm just going to tell you a summary 
of what I think this vision means uh, uh, and then, you know, continue to apply it to the bigger picture, right? Because I think this is ultimately the point. The point, the point of this answer that Daniel receives is that, you know, Daniel, Daniel is thinking, all right, 70 weeks are going to happen and then we will be able to return to Jerusalem. The city will re be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt and we will live happily ever after. You know, maybe that, that might not be exactly how he was thinking because he had already received the other visions, right? Where, where there's this, you know, stone that was not made by human hands and comes and destroys the other kingdoms and it turns into a big mountain. And he had also received the other vision where there is one like a son of man that receives the kingdom of God and gives it to his people. So I think that, you know, Daniel's mindset was already bigger than that. But in this case, I think he was focused on the idea of going back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple. The 70, the 70 years are up. We need to go back. And so in a nutshell, I believe that what, the, what Gabriel is telling Daniel is yes and no. Yes, but not yet. Yes, you're going to go back to Jerusalem. Yes, the, the, the temple will be rebuilt, but there's actually going to be 70 weeks or 77s, whatever that means, 77, 70 weeks. And then during this time, something greater is going to happen. Not just the rebuilding of the temple, not just the rebuilding of the city, not just the return of the people to the land of Israel, but something greater is going to happen. And these are the things that are going to happen. And he mentions that in verse 24. So there's six things that are going to happen at the, during these 70 weeks. So verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. And these are the seven things. Number one, two, sorry, the six things. To finish the transgression. To put an end to sin. And to atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. So he is saying, there is something greater that will happen other than just the people returning to Israel, right? If you remember in Ezra and, and Nehemiah, they actually go back to the land, right? Cyrus does make a decree for the people to go back. They go back, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the walls. And what is the response of the people that see the, the, the new temple? those who had seen the old one, they're crying, right? It's, it's clearly not what they were expecting. What, what is, uh, uh, how does Nehemiah end the, the, the book? He's angry, he's hunkered down in the temple, he's pulling people's beards. Like this is clearly not that, you know, not as magnificent as they would have thought. And I think the key is in that, the people continue in unrepentance, right? They went back to Jerusalem as God had promised after 70 years, but they continue in unrepentance. And so what is this great thing that would happen in these 70 weeks? Well, I would argue that this great thing that would happen in the 70 weeks is the first coming of Jesus, right? Jesus is coming and he is making a sacrifice to end the transgression, to put an end to sin, Right? Obviously, we know that you know, in the death of Jesus, it doesn't mean that nobody sins anymore. What it means is that he has dealt with the problem of sin. 
to atone for iniquity, right? That's what Jesus did on the cross. He atoned for our sins, for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness. That's what Jesus began to do when he came to seal both vision and prophets, right? So Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy. Jesus is the one who puts an end to all of the prophecy and to anoint a most holy And then here is tricky because it's either place or a holy one. And so I think, you know, what I, where I would go here is he is making a place kind of in the language of, you know, in the language of the author of Hebrews, he is anointing this holy place through which we can enter the presence of God. So just to give you kind of the, 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 the quick rundown of the next few verses, and then we'll apply it. Basically, what I think this is saying, uh, verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So he is saying, from the moment that the people, from the moment that Cyrus decrees that people are going to go back to Jerusalem, to the moment that an anointed one, and make no mistake here, he's not talking about Jesus here. He's saying from the moment that an anointed one, a prince comes, there will be 70 weeks. And I believe that that anointed one, that prince is the, the Roman emperor Titus who comes in 70 AD and destroys Jerusalem. He's saying from that time, from the time of the decree to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, there will be 70 weeks. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, now this anointed one is not the same anointed one. This is Jesus an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And of course, we know from Isaiah, right? That Jesus is cut off, that Jesus is rejected by the people of Israel. Now, going back to the other anointed one, to the prince. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end of, and to the end there shall be war desolations are decreed. And now many people would say, well, but there wasn't a flood in 70 AD. No, there wasn't a flood. But throughout Old Testament prophecy, the way that the, way that the prophets talk about the destruction of kingdoms and empires is like this extremely cosmic language where the stars fall down and, you know, all of that crazy uh, type of destruction. Verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for a week. I don't know what that means. I would, I think I would go, it's probably, uh, it's, yeah, no, I'm not even going to go there. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. This is one of those phrases that makes some people think that this might be referring to Antiochus. I think that, you know, to be consistent with the view that, that I'm presenting you here, this would be Jesus basically putting an end to all the sacrificial system, right? This was Jesus basically coming performing the last sacrifice ever and therefore putting an end to the sacrifices. Uh, And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So this one that would come again would be Emperor Titus who would destroy Jerusalem. So now that that's out of the way, we can talk about that later if you want. But here here is the big picture. Daniel is praying for the return of the people of Israel into Jerusalem. And at that time, that's probably all he can see, right? It's kind of like when you're, when you're climbing a, a, a mountain or something and you, you feel like you can see the, 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 
the peak, the climax, but you, but then you, you know, you pass that little bump and then you're like, oh no, it's still, it's still way up there. And so I think this is kind of what's happening to Daniel. Daniel is thinking, okay, we're going back to Jerusalem, but Gabriel comes and tells him, yes, you're going back to Jerusalem, but that's not it. There's something greater. And, and, and here's the shocking news for Daniel. This something greater does not require the city of Jerusalem being rebuilt and the temple being rebuilt. In fact, this something greater indicates that Jerusalem will be destroyed, right? And so this is obviously shattering for, for mind-shattering for Daniel. But again, I think he was prepared for that because of all the other visions that he had received where God is talking about this universal kingdom where everyone, where all the nations, right? Kind of what, what Sam read in Revelation, every people, tribe, tongue, and nation, they will be in the presence of God, worshiping him forever and ever. And so praying with the bigger picture in mind means that we will pray with the big picture of God's kingdom in mind. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that in our limited perspective, in our limited view, we might be praying for something that might not even be bad, right? For something that might not be even sinful. We might be praying for something that God promised. And that's really good. That's great. But we need to keep in mind that God's, you know, God's ultimate purpose is to establish his universal kingdom in all the earth, right? God's ultimate the, the ultimate goal of history is that the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so when we have that greater picture in mind, then our prayers can be affected. We can be praying for, for health, right? For our own health. But then we can also recognize, you know, my health is like this little in comparison to God's kingdom, right? We can be praying for, for our, in, for, you know, for us individually, we can be praying for our families. We can be praying for Kaleo as a church. But we also recognize that, you know, me, my family, and my church, although they are extremely important to God, they are almost nothing in light of God's universal kingdom. And so my encouragement for all of us is that we would pray with the big picture in mind and not only pray, but that we would live with the big picture in mind, that we would reorient our lives and, and everything that we do and our resources and, and uh, our family, everything that we have, everything that God has given us, that we would reorient it for his kingdom, for his glory, for the big picture. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have promised to give your kingdom to your people. We thank you for Jesus, the son of man that received the kingdom when he ascended. We thank you for the taste that we have of your kingdom now and uh, with our brothers and sisters and with your spirit here with us. But we realize that this is not completed yet. We realize that many people still need to hear your word Many people still need to come to repentance. We recognize that there are parts of your plan and your purpose that we might not understand, but that are still yet to happen and to be fulfilled. And God, we want to act in faith. We want to live and pray with the big picture in mind.
recognizing that your kingdom is coming. Lord, we pray for your will to be done and your kingdom to come. In Jesus' name, amen.